please turn with me to Psalm, the book of Psalms, chapter 17. So Psalm 17, where we pick it up in verse 1 and read down to the end of the psalm. Seventeen, verse one. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regards to the work of man, By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in an ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would graciously and powerfully speak to us this morning. Encourage us by the grace of your word. Speak to us this morning and may we have listening ears so that we may receive your word. And we pray that you would take this word and plant it deep in our hearts, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the Gospels, Jesus tells a parable, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, a parable of the soils, the different soils, and he compares, or he describes one particular soil as one filled with many rocks. It's a rocky soil, and seeds fall upon the rocky soil, and they don't take roots. He likens that to those who receive the Word of God, and receive it immediately, they receive it with joy. But then, on account of persecution and tribulation because of their association with God or because of their faith in the Lord. This persecution comes and they don't last. They immediately fall away. It's for this reason that Jesus tells us elsewhere that we must count the cost, the cost of following the Lord Jesus with our life. 
And certainly times of tribulation and persecution or times of just suffering, whether it's on account of bearing the name of Christ or not, can lend itself to be an opportunity for us to walk away from the Lord. Theodore Beza, who took up the pulpit after John Calvin there in Geneva, was, it is said that he personally experienced deliverance from the Lord about 600 times. And during his tenure there in Geneva, as a pastor, there was a great persecution of the church. And 600 times of receiving the deliverance of the Lord Jesus time and time and time and time again. 600 times there was another opportunity to walk away from the Lord. But he remained faithful. Continued steadfast in the Lord. And so in his own personal life, he witnessed a pattern, and that is a pattern of God's faithfulness. A faithfulness to his people because of God's personal relationship with his people. As we turn to the psalm, the psalm is grounded in a similar pattern. It is a pattern that's as old as the Old Testament. And when we turn our attention to the psalm, we read the words of a desperate man who makes desperate pleas before the Lord. And one of the things that's remarkable about his pleas is how he grounds his pleas before the Lord, but more on that a little bit later. But first, let us consider his pleas. Consider his desperate plea generated by a dire affliction. As you work your way through the psalm, I think you can make a good argument that perhaps the thing that he's experiencing is a, a false accusation. Someone has perhaps said some things about him that weren't true, accused him of crimes that he did not commit. But I think it would be helpful for us to sort of broaden this out a little bit. Because in the passage deals more broadly to the topic of the persecution of the righteous. I mean, one of the reasons, or the main reason why he's sort of in this affliction and in the season of trial, is because he is a righteous man. And as you, maybe you've noticed as we work through the passage, that he, he proclaims an innocence, a righteousness. But this isn't just a pleas by a man who is just innocent or proclaiming an innocence about him, but he really speaks to the quality of his innocence, or the nature of his innocence. The pleas of an innocent man who is persecuted for his being righteous. And it isn't a surprise as a king of Israel that comes with enemies. Enemies without, enemies within, but even as Christians today, right in the Gospels and other places in the New Testament, tells us or to expect that those who bear the name of Jesus Christ will be persecuted. John 15, 20, the Lord Jesus says, Remember the word that I say to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus tells us, 
that is, those who bear the name of Jesus Christ, that you can expect persecution because of your close association to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is our heavenly master, and we are but his servants. And if they have persecuted the Lord Jesus, then we can expect that his servants as well will be persecuted. And because of our close association, our relationship to the Lord Jesus, it's like wearing nothing but Yankee attire and wearing and and just waving a large Yankee flag at Fenway Stadium in the middle of a Red Sox game. Right, you'll probably be lucky to get out of there alive. I'm sure it's not that bad. But regardless, right, you're attracting a certain kind of attention. Right, you're sticking out like a sore thumb. And it's similar to those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why we can expect persecution is because we are no longer like the world. John 3.20, Jesus says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, let his works should be exposed. Right, because we're no longer of the world. And in that same section, it tells us that those who are in the darkness, they love the darkness, but those who are in the light, they no longer love the darkness. As you immediately become noticeable that you are no longer a part of the world. And because you're no longer a part of the world, then your walk is different than everyone else's. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, speaking to the kind of persecution, I'm persuaded that most likely the kind of persecution that Christians will face or face today is not of the physical kind. I mean, here in Western society, in our country, most likely, if persecution becomes worse, and I think the Scriptures give us reasons to believe that we can only expect persecution to get worse, but most likely it may not be of a physical kind. This was the kind of persecution that the Christians faced that Peter wrote his letter to. Not so much a physical violence, but a violence of words, slander, false accusations, gossip, ridicule. The kind of persecution that leads to isolating those who are not like the rest of the world. It is persecution of this kind, persecution that might even lead to loss of job and income. And it's not that we should never pray for peace, right? I, I, I could be convinced, and maybe I'm, perhaps I'm wrong, but in my study of the Scriptures, I don't see anywhere where we should be praying for persecution, but rather, the, actually, the Scriptures tell us to pray for the opposite. Right? 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. The pattern that we see in the New Testament is that when there is persecution, right, God's people run. Right? Naturally so. The early Christians, they were dispersed because of persecution. What is the pattern in Apostle Paul's life? He continued, I mean, sometimes he walked into persecution, but many times he also fled from persecution. And so it is right and good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, that we actually do pray fervently for peace 
that we might lead a quiet life. Now, the reality is that there is persecution, and some are persecuted more than others, some to a greater degree and some to a lesser degree. And to some degree, you perhaps have already experienced the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe relationships have been severed. Maybe there's been a loss of reputation. Regardless of what those experiences were for you or are right now and where you land according to the will of God, the Scripture's exhortation to us is that we might not be surprised when we do experience persecution. So it is the reality of affliction that comes in the form of persecution that generates the psalmist's desperate plea to God, which then moves us secondly to consider the plea, to consider the plea of the psalmist. In the passage, he says, Hear a just cause, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer, let my vindication come, let your eyes behold the right. I call upon you, incline your ear to me, hear my words, show your steadfast love, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, those who persecute and those who are wicked, deliver my soul from the wicked. Around 15 times, the psalmist makes this plea to the Lord in different words, deliver, O Lord, deliver, deliver, answer, come, come, come. And in this way, we know just how desperate he is. I mean, consider the desperation that someone like Theodore Beza must have experienced to have been delivered from the Lord 600 times in his life. Could you imagine what that man's prayers must have been like and crying out to the Lord repeatedly, day after day? Or take, for instance, the parable of the persistent widow, which some of you probably are familiar with. The widow who continued to plead time and time again, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. You certainly know what it's like to be desperate. When affliction comes as a robber and thieves away your joy, or you can experience desperation when your children become too much to handle. You have nothing left to give. When you perhaps once again hurt those whom you love, and you cannot find a solution to the problem of your anger or jealousy or lust or whatever that thing is, you feel a sense of desperation when you feel as though the devil has launched his volley of rockets upon your life without respite. When you are on the run again from family and friends who want your head because you bear the name of Christ, that may not be your reality, but that certainly is the reality of many brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. There are some seasons when you feel as though you have nothing left to give, but just these buckets full of sorrow and desperation that you draw from the wellspring of affliction and sorrow and distress. You 
and we cannot understand all the ways of God. We cannot understand why certain things are happening. We cannot understand how the Lord might be working. But the Scriptures don't call us to understand. But the Scriptures call us to pray and to beg and to plead and to cry out in desperation to the Lord. Right, take a lesson from the parable of a persistent widow to continue to pray and pray and plead and beg and ask for the Lord to deliver. And by the way, what does it look like to be a faithful friend? Perhaps you have no words to help those that you know are in a season of desperation, that words just don't quite, are not quite there. You don't know exactly what to do to help someone feel better or to help alleviate their distress. Sometimes being a faithful friend is just to walk with them and take one of those buckets of sorrow that they're carrying in their hand and go with them to the altar of grace and pour those out in tears with them. There's something else to consider about the psalmist's plea. His pleas are not bellowed out and left out there in the sky to hang in thin air as like a, like a kite without strings. Consider the remarkable ground of his plea. He says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. So he's proclaiming an innocence. He's proclaiming a blamelessness. Listen to my cries, O Lord, from someone whose lips are free from deceit, from someone who is blameless. Now, he's not proclaiming sinlessness. That's not what he's doing. There's a difference there. What he's doing is that he's coming before the court of law with God as the judge, and what he's presenting is the good record of his life. It's not a record that doesn't show sinlessness, but is a record of right doing a record that shows a pattern of righteousness. And it's remarkable that he would come before the Lord and ground his pleas in that way because I think that's something that is strange to us. I think for most Christians, we would hesitate to ground our prayers before the Lord in that way, to appeal to our righteousness, to our appeal to our pattern of right doing. And we hesitate making pleas on such grounds for at least a few reasons. One, I think, because we just don't do it in general. Generally speaking, we lift up our prayers to the Lord, we make our requests known to God, but we have a, a sort of a pattern of not really grounding them in anything. Another reason might be because we're just unfamiliar with the promises of God. There are numerous promises written for us in the Scriptures, and one of the reasons why they're written for us is so that we may use them to ground our prayers before the Lord. So that if we're praying for peace, 
we can say, God, your word says that you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed or fixed on you because he trusts in you. Lord, I am trying as hard as I can to keep my mind on you, to keep my mind fixed on you. So please give me your peace. But we must become familiar with the promises of God because they can help us ground our prayers before the Lord. Another reason why we might hesitate in grounding our prayers before the Lord, especially when it comes to the way in which the psalmist does, is because we are afraid to do so. Because we are afraid that if we lift up our prayers and requests unto the Lord, we might nullify that prayer request by grounding it in our own righteousness because what we have a tendency to do is not think about the righteousness that we have in Christ, but we tend to think of our sins. We tend to think of our shame. We tend to think of our regret. We tend to think of the sins of today or yesterday or a week ago or a month ago or even from years ago. And all we can do is accuse ourselves. And in that sense, we do a much better job at accusing ourselves than the devil does because that is his title. That is his role. In the court of law, there is the devil with his arms behind his back, with his feet up on the table, and not having to do anything because we're pretty good at accusing ourselves and thinking about how much we don't measure up and how much we sin and how weak we are and how often we get things wrong. We tend to think that the opposite of sinful is sinlessness, but that isn't the case, not according to the scriptures. The opposite of sinful is righteousness. The psalmist is appealing to the pattern of his life because he wears a righteousness that comes not from his own works, but comes from believing and trusting in God. And for us, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ who stand on this side of the cross, we have even all the more reason to appeal to righteousness because we have a righteousness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. We have a righteousness that comes to the death and resurrection of Christ. And the scriptures encourage us to ground our appeals before the Lord in that kind of way. In John 14, 13, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Right, many of us are familiar with this. When we pray to the Lord, we say, In the name of Christ. That is a way of appealing to the Lord Jesus. What is his name? His name represents all that Jesus is. It represents all that Jesus has done. And so when we pray to the Lord and we say, we ask this, Lord, in your name, we are appealing to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's died and rose again for sinners. And we're making our appeal on the name of the Lord Jesus. In 1 John 3, 22, this is very similar to what we see the psalmist doing in, John, in Psalm 17. It says that whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments to do what pleases him. So if we keep the commandments of the Lord and we strive to please the Lord in all that we do, this actually 
can help us in our prayers to the Lord. We can use these things to ground our appeals before the Lord and have this confidence that God hears us and that God will respond. The Lord doesn't want you to be unsure of the righteousness of Christ. The Scriptures don't want you to be unsure of your salvation. But it actually wants you to be confident in your salvation. And in that confidence, come before the throne of grace and confidently appeal to God based on right doing. If, in fact, you have been walking in the commandments of the Lord, right? If you haven't been and you haven't been striving to please the Lord, then you have reason to doubt. So as he grounds his appeals, he appeals on right doing. The psalmist also makes his appeals grounded in God's character. In verse 7, he prays, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. The psalmist knows that the Lord is a God of steadfast love. And that steadfast love has an object. That object is you and I. He knows that the Lord is a Savior to all those who seek refuge in Him. An example that we see of this elsewhere is in Genesis chapter 18, when the Lord is talking with Abraham and disclosing what He's about to do and going to Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness and considering destroying both cities Abraham, knowing that his nephew is in the city, makes an appeal to God. Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you, says Abraham, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's appealing to the righteousness of God, that God is a righteous judge and that he will do rightly, and that is delivering those who are also righteous. The psalmist also grounds his appeals on relationship. Verse 8, he says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The apple of your eye. It's actually a Hebrew expression. It means to be focused on, to watch with intent. To say that someone is, the, is the, the apple of your eyes, to say that you value this person above all things. It literally means the little man of the eye. What that means is that if, if you've ever been close enough to a person, face to face, so close that you could actually see your face or reflection in the eye of the other person, that is the idea here. The psalmist is asking, keep a vigilant eye upon me. Be that close to me, to where I can see my reflection in your eyes, O Lord. Do not lose me. Cover me like a hen covers her chicks. An example of this we see in the New Testament, Matthew 7, verse 7. And by the way, all these, all this grounding that the psalmist uses to plead to the Lord are there for us to use as well. 
It's teaching us how to pray. Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. is the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Sometimes when my children want something, they'll come to me and say, Dad, can I have candy because you love me? That's a good reason, for sure. And if I decide not to give you candy, it doesn't mean I love you less or do not love you. But it's very similar to what the psalmist is doing and what we see here in Matthew chapter 7. It is an appeal grounded on God being a good and loving Father. That when we come before the Lord and make our appeals before the Lord and our request known to the Lord, we can trust that he will answer and he will give us good things. And those good things might not be what you think are good things, but regardless, whatever, whatever way he answers your requests, the promise is that as a loving and gracious father, he will give you what is good for you. He grounds his appeal also with personal commitments. Verse 3, he says, I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. Verse 4, with regard to the works of man by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your path. My feet have not slipped. So it is not enough to ground our pleas and our requests before the Lord in all of these manners or in these, all these different ways. But there also has to be a commitment to repentance. The nature of repentance is a turning away from sin and a turning towards the Lord Jesus. But when there is no commitment in our hearts to follow the ways of the Lord, to pray and plead before the Lord is like, making your requests known to God with hands open, pointed heavenward, with another hand behind your back with fingers crossed. But there must be a commitment to continue to follow the ways of the Lord. And so as the psalmist grounds his pleas before the Lord, let us also not be afraid to ground our pleas before God in similar fashion. Christ Jesus died for you. He paid his own precious blood in order to make a way for you and I to come before the throne of grace, for us to be adopted as children of God, so that we can have this freedom, this privilege of coming before the Lord and making our requests known to him without fear of rejection, without fear of being cast away. having considered the ground of the psalmist's plea, lastly, let us consider the, the telos of the plea or the end of the plea, not the finality of the plea, but what does ultimately the plea lead to? The psalmist is in dire affliction. He trusts in the Lord. He cries repeatedly unto God for deliverance, for answer from above, for protection 
for preservation. And he grounds his prayers on his personal commitment, on his relationship with the Lord, on the character of God. But what confidence does he have that God will actually deliver? What confidence does he have that God will actually answer his prayers? What confidence should you and I have that even if we make such appeals and ground them in the same way that the psalmist does, what confidence can we and should we have that God will actually answer and deliver? We can have confidence that God will hear and that God will answer when we remember and believe that God is righteous and he always comes to the aid of the righteous. Because that is his pattern. Because that is what he always does. And Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, speaking of the Lord, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. It is just and it is right that God come and deliver all those who are righteous. Not righteous in and of themselves because of their own works, but righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The value of something is oftentimes determined by what you're willing to give up or what you're willing to pay to have whatever object it is. Would you ever expect that the Lord would ever lose sight of those for whom he paid a high price to save and redeem? Now, don't misunderstand me. My intention is not to sort of make much of us and say, oh, God is, it loves me and cares for me and I am high and holy and I am worthy to be saved. That's not the case there. That's not what I'm trying to say. Ultimately, we know that first and foremost, Christ Jesus came into the world to redeem sinners, first and foremost, for his glory. But he also certainly did so because of love. Because he came and he died for those whom he loved. We can expect that if he pays such a high price to redeem us, that he will also keep us and keep a vigilant eye upon us. And if the Lord knows how to save us from the judgment and wrath of God that our sins deserve, then we can also expect that he will continue to save us and deliver us and things that are nowhere near the gravity of being saved from the judgment and wrath of God. If God can provide the greater deliverances, then he can certainly provide the smaller deliverances. 2 Peter 2.4 speaks of this pattern of God saving the righteous. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept unto the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment." The Lord knows how to rescue the righteous because he knows how to do it 
He's had many years of practice in doing so. And he continues to deliver and rescue even to this very day. And that is the confidence that we can have that God will continue to deliver us and come through for his people. Now pay attention to this last verse. And it is here that we see what our pleas before the Lord ultimately lead to. Verse 15, it says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And before that, it tells us about the wicked and how their womb is filled with treasure. Their bellies are satisfied with the riches of the world. And they're satisfied with children, children that they can pass on their inheritance to, their treasures to. And it seems to tell us also that the Lord seems to be the one who provides graciously for the wicked. And we might ask, well, why? How is it that the wicked prosper and his righteous people suffer? Perhaps one of the reasons why God might graciously provide for the wicked is to, as a form of his judgment. Jesus says in the Gospels that it is very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because he has his eyes set on the treasures of the world and considers those things much more valuable than the treasure of Jesus Christ. Because as long as he is fully satisfied with the, la- with the fruit of his labors in this world, then less likely is he able to see his great need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ and to be saved also from the judgment and wrath of God. Beware of living your life like the ungodly who store up wealth and treasure in order to make for themselves a life of, ple- of ease and pleasure. Jesus might say, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And that's the reward of the treasures. If you aim for treasures and pleasure in this world, that is all that you will get. But we see in the passage, as it concludes, is that there is something far better that is awaiting those who wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That there is a greater reward coming for those who continue to commit their ways unto the Lord. While the wicked are satisfied with the treasures of this world, the righteous, instead, it says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the great reward of the righteous, and that is that they will one day see God. And they will behold him, and they will be transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. That is what we have to look forward to. That is what we strive for. This is what the Puritans and many others call the beatific vision. That is the vision of God. Revelation 22.4 speaks of this vision. It says that they, the Christians, the righteous, will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 2 Corinthians 3.18 also speaks of this vision. It says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you realize that what you behold today through the Word 
is greater than what Moses beheld up on the mountain when he asked to see the glory of God and what he was able to see was just the back of God. What you behold today is the glory of Jesus Christ. Every time you open up his word, you see the glory of Jesus Christ. And every time you behold the glory of Christ, you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another until one day you will see the glorious Christ and be perfectly transformed into his image and be satisfied with the sight of God. This beatific, beatific vision is a transformative vision. It is the vision of seeing God repeatedly and being transformed every time you behold the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the sight that makes happy. Jonathan Edwards wrote of this vision. He says, How good is God that he has created man for this very end to make him happy in the enjoyment of himself the Almighty who was happy from the days of eternity in himself, that he might make them blessed in the beholding of his excellency and might this way glorify himself. This is the sight that we look forward to. This is the great treasure that we desire to have. It is the transformative sight. It is the sight that makes happy. This sight of Jesus is a sight of Christ, a transformative sight that turns the tears of sorrow into tears of joy. It is a transformative sight that turns depression into celebration, a transformative sight that it turns exhaustion from running the difficult race to peaceful rest. It is a transformative sight that turns pain into restoration, that turns instability into security, that turns illness-stricken bodies into perfected bodies. It is a transformative sight that turns pleas into shouts of praise, that turns dishonor into glory. That is what we have to look forward to. That should be the great desire of our hearts as we continue to make our pleas before the Lord, as we continue to cry out to Him, every cry and every plea unto the Lord is ultimately a cry for this, that God would bring us to the day that we behold the Lord Jesus Christ and be satisfied in His likeness. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in hearts. For what? They shall see God. Why should we ever expect that God would bring this about? If this is ultimately what we are after, what we long to have and be satisfied with, what confidence can we have today that God will bring this about and preserve us and keep us until the day that we behold the glory of Jesus Christ? The confidence that we have is that God is a righteous God. And it is right that he should bring us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we long for the day when When the trials are over, 
when the seasons of distress and the seasons of suffering have finally come to an end. Where there is no more persecution of the righteous. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come. Lord, help us, give us the strength to continue. Give us the endurance to continue to run the race. Lord, when we have nothing left to give, help us to press on and press into the kingdom just a little bit more. Renew us day by day. Help us to continue to look to your word. To be encouraged by the promises that are contained in it. So that we might continue to be reminded of the gospel and behold the glory of Christ and gradually transformed into his image. Help us, we pray. We plead in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.